0: Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org.
1: It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe, and this is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. We have been reading These Precious Days by Ann Patchett, a collection of essays that was published in 2021 and is now out in paperback. The essays explore big topics like love, Friendship and mortality, and more mundane ideas like curbing the urge to shop or cleaning out stuffed closets. Patchett is world famous for her fiction. She has published eight novels and won many awards. Her most recent novel, The Dutch House, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. This is her second collection of essays. She's also written two other nonfiction books and two books for children. She's a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop and lives in Nashville, Tennessee, where she's also the owner of an independent bookstore. Called Parnassus. And Time magazine named her one of the 100 most influential people in the world. And I am very excited to say that Anne Patchett is here with us today. Hello, Anne. Hi. Do you feel influenced? (laughs) I'll tell you at the end of the hour. How's that sound? Okay. All right. (laughs) Out of 8 billion, that's quite something. So I want to tell you that I picked this book up about a year ago because I had multiple people in my life who I know and I trust who said this book was exactly what they needed to read at that point in time. It was exactly what they felt like they needed after living through the pandemic for as long as we had. Tell me what your concept of the essay collection was when, when you started out.
2: Um, Well, first, I would like to thank your friends, because that's really, really kind, and I appreciate it. And I think it's interesting that if one person just says, boy, this is what this experience has been like for me, and it's so specific, everybody's experience in their own home, in their own life during a pandemic is going to be completely unique. And yet I wrote mine down, and a lot of people said, oh, that's how I was feeling, too, And the book really came out of the title essay, These Precious Days, which is very long. And it's the story of having met Suki Raphael very briefly. We picked up an email correspondence. She was Tom Hanks' assistant. Um, While we were emailing, in the course of our really loose friendship, like one email a month, She got pancreatic cancer. She got over pancreatic cancer. She had a recurrence of pancreatic cancer. And my husband, who's a doctor in Nashville, said, you should have her send me her records. We might be able to get her into a clinical trial here. Sookie came to Nashville, and the pandemic happened, like, days later. And she got stuck here and got stuck here with us. And and that was really... My big pandemic experience, me, Suki, my husband Carl, the three of us living together. Carl was working from home. I always work from home. And there we were. And so I wrote this piece, which was its own journey. And I really felt like it was the best thing I had ever written in my life. Um, It was really important to me because it was really important to Suki. And it really changed a lot of things in her life, not her health but just her sense of self-worth and, and how she saw herself and how she connected to a lot of other people. And I thought, I really want to put this in a book. So I started writing more essays to go around that essay. That's a very long answer. <laughs>
1: and it's it also underscores what you said a moment ago that this is such a unique experience and yet so many people have related so strongly to it but the experience could not have been more unique where you invited a person that you barely knew (laughs) to stay with you and then ended up having this very intense experience this very very deep friendship and this intense experience of living together during an unprecedented time I mean somehow that very specific experience feels universal in some ways.
2: Well what we were all thinking about while we were on lockdown at home was death. You know, are we gonna die? Is is COVID gonna kill us? We just didn't know we didn't have a vaccine. We didn't know what was gonna happen. And and then here was Suki with recurrent pancreatic cancer and you pretty much do know that a person's going to die from recurrent pancreatic cancer. I mean, it, it was a matter of the trial was a matter of how long she could prolong her life, not whether or not she was going to beat the disease. And so the thing that everyone was thinking about, maybe on some back burner way, was the thing that we were thinking about all the time, because what we were talking about was this terrible cancer. And And, you know, as far as inviting her to come and live with us, and people say, oh, that's just so wild that you did that. But again, if, if you knew somebody and there was one clinical trial that she matched, and it happened to be in the town where I lived at the hospital where my husband worked, and the hospital that she went to, UCLA, was going to be starting the same trial just six weeks later, so she could come here, get a start, and then go back to UCLA, the problem being that, of course, she couldn't leave once she got here, once the pandemic started. And also, clinical trials that were in place went ahead. Clinical trials that hadn't started all across the country were canceled because the hospitals were paying attention to COVID
1: you spend quite a bit of time in the book explaining how it's a very logical thing to do but it's still a, it's still an extraordinary thing to do and and i know that that you understand that as well although it it makes perfect sense for you and uh, later in the hour i do want to explore your experience with friendship, your concept of friendship, because clearly deep friendships are something that you have had throughout your life and have invested in throughout your life. You make that clear through so many of your essays. But I want to talk a little bit about mortality because, I mean, obviously you were facing mortality in, in looking at Suki's health, but also, again, all of us were facing the question of mortality as we lived through this pandemic, and so many people lost their lives and lost loved ones in this pandemic. So mortality was was very, very real to a lot of people. In the introduction to the collection, you share that every time you write a novel, you worry that you'll die before you finish the novel. So that that is one of the things that brings your mortality closest to the surface every time you go through this process. And you found that, that other... Novelist friends have the same experience. Tell me more about no. that.
2: Sure. You remember the book Horton Hears a Who? Yeah. The Dr. Seuss so the the elephants walking around with basically a little dandelion puff and there's a whole planet of little tiny who's um and and Horton knows like if he drops the dandelion puff all the who's will be wiped out. And that, that is really what it's like. It's like you're carrying around a planet full of who's. And it, on one hand, of course, it doesn't matter. If I am in the middle of writing a novel and I drown or whatever, um, it, the world's going to go on just the same and be fine, except the world in my head will not go on. And all those people that I make up and believe in while I'm writing them their fate is completely dependent on my fate. And and so during the pandemic, at the beginning of the pandemic, I had just published The Dutch House, and I wasn't writing a new novel. And part of my brain says, well, you know, you're stuck at home. This is a great time to write a novel. You're not traveling. But it's really almost impossible to start a, a long-format project if you don't know what the future is like i don't know who would really write a novel under the threat of the immediate threat of war
0: mm-hmm.
2: you just wouldn't think yeah this is a good time for me to start something that's going to take a couple of years but i could write essays i could write things that were smaller and more manageable and put them together and again and again the the subject that comes up in a way, is death and mortality, but also we're all going to die, right? Eventually, one thing or another. That's just a fact. But when we have something that makes us aware of that, life can seem very precious and very beautiful. So it's, it's about embracing your own mortality and in doing so, embracing your own life.
1: When you write an essay... Is this a process of self-discovery for you, or have you already worked through the ideas and emotions that that you end up sharing with your readers?
2: I work through first. Um, and it's not a matter of everything in my life becomes an essay. You know, life is usually just your life. Um, the, The best example of this is the essay called How to Practice, which is about cleaning out my house. And my childhood best friend, Tavia's father, died during the pandemic. He had been in the same apartment our whole lives. I had spent half of my childhood in that apartment. Tavia and I and her sister cleaning out the place after he dies. Tavia and I, neither of us have children and we're saying, we can't do this. You know, we have, to, we have to account for our own belongings, because if something happens to us, who is going to go through our junk? We both decide that we're going to clean out our houses. We start doing it. My husband and I start cleaning out our house. And all this time, I am not thinking, wow, this is going to make a great essay. <laughs> um, it was just like, wow, okay, today I'm going to work on the linen closet. Today I'm going to work on the kitchen cabinets. Because I decided every day I would take one thing, again, a pandemic project, and go through the house. And it wasn't until my sister's friend, Meg, was visiting from Minnesota with her daughter, Charlotte. I've known Meg and Charlotte forever. They come over to say hello. Charlotte, I think, was 10 or something at the time. And she really likes seeing other people's bathrooms. So Meg says, can Charlotte go upstairs and see your bathrooms? And I said, yeah, sure, of course. And and she walks by my office, and she looks in my office, and she screams because I have a typewriter. She's always wanted a typewriter. And then they leave, and I think, can I give her my old manual typewriter from college, the typewriter that I wrote all my stories
1: on in graduate school?
2: And, and at that moment, I thought, oh, this is an essay. And I, it
1: became I, such an amazing it, essay. We have to it, take a short break. Okay, We will be back in just a moment. I am talking with Ann Patchett. She is the author of many books, but we are talking about These Precious Days. It's a collection of essays now out in paperback. We'll introduce our expert readers in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa.
0: Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com
1: It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebby. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club and we've been reading These Precious Days by Anne Patchett. It is a deeply personal collection of essays that explores love, friendship, and mortality, along with some of the stuff of everyday life as well. The title essay explores an unlikely friendship and an unusual circumstance that took place early in the COVID-19 pandemic. Anne Patchett is here today, and I also want to introduce our expert readers. Deborah Marquardt is here with us. She is Iowa's Poet Laureate, author, and distinguished professor of English at Iowa State University. Her most recent collection of essays is The Night We Landed on the Moon. Hello, Deb.
3: Hello, Charity. It's so great to be here.
1: Well, it is wonderful to have you here. And uh, thank you so much for sitting down and reading this collection. And thank you for you posted a picture on social media of your dog, Buttons, next to the cover of the book. It is almost an exact replica, so so (laughs) I'm sure that you and Anne obviously have a lot in common um, as far as dogs go. But, Deb, tell me a little bit about your response to the collection. Oh, it's
3: it's just amazing to to hear your conversation so so far. And Anne, I'm so grateful that you've been willing to be part of this. And I feel like I'm, I've been in a long. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry.
2: No, I was just going to say I'm I'm so glad to have an expert reader with a dog named Buttons. <laughs> <laughs> so fantastic! Actually,
3: they're brothers, and their names are Buttons and Benjamin. So they are they are literary dogs, <laughs> Benjamin Buttons. Um, but but anyway. I, In so many ways, I felt so many connections to what you've written, and I felt like I think many readers will say it, it feels like a long and rich conversation with a good friend. And um,
1: that's one of the, the best experiences, I think, for any reader. Absolutely. I wanna bring our other expert reader into the conversation as well. Anne Friedman is here. She is an author and journalist who grew up in Iowa and her most recent book is Big Friendship, How We Keep Each Other Close, written with Amanatu. So, Hello, Anne.
4: Hello, thanks for having me as a secondary Anne on this right. episode. <laughs> the world needs more of us. I know, oh, no, no E-Ans. <laughs>
1: that, is, that is 100% true. Anne, um, tell me just a little bit about your
4: response to this collection. And Friedman. Title essay, what a banger. I mean, I really enjoyed reading it in the context of this other work from the pandemic as well. Um, and yeah, just echoing that feeling of really sinking into a conversation with or an experience with you. It was such a treat. And well, thank you. I I want to,
1: um, Ann Patchett, ask you to read a little bit. I I know an essay that that our other readers are very eager to discuss is uh, one that you call There Are No Children Here. And I would love for you to read an excerpt from that before we start our conversation.
2: Okay. This is from the middle of the essay. I don't remember any of my close friends ever asking me when I was going to have children. I suppose by definition of our being close, they knew me. But their husbands asked me, or they told me, I needed children. It was important. I suspect it had less to do with my best interest and more to do with the fact that I made them nervous, walking through the world unencumbered. I was setting a bad example. People want you to want what they want. If you want the same things they want, then their want is validated. If you don't want the same things, your lack of wanting to certain people comes across as judgment. People are forever asking if I mind if they order a hamburger. Not unless you force me to eat it, I say. This gets trickier when applied to alcohol. I stopped drinking a long time ago. People feel much more strongly about having a drink than they do about having a burger. So then, just a glass of champagne. I don't drink. But you'll have champagne for the toast. I shake my head. Does my declining a glass of champagne mean that I judge your glass of champagne? It does not. Does my choice to not have children mean I judge your choices to have children? That I think my life is in some way superior? It does not. What it means is that I don't want children or a hamburger, or a gin and tonic. That's all it means. How I came not to care about other people's opinions is something of a mystery, even to me. I was born with a compass. It was the luck of my draw. This compass has been incalculably beneficial for writing, for everything really. And for that reason, I take very good care of it. How do you take care of your internal compass? You don't listen to anyone who tells you to do something as consequential as having a child. Think about that for one
1: second. That is Anne Patchett reading from her essay, There Are No Children Here, from the collection, These Precious Days. And and this entire essay is story after story, bullet point after bullet point, interaction after interaction, where people in your life, strangers and people that you knew and loved, had a really hard time understanding that you have chosen not to have children. And the, the essay is funny. It's heartbreaking. It seems like a profound failure of empathy on the part of humanity that they can't <laughs> we, people can't listen to what you say and understand what you say. Um, in in revisiting all of those moments, I mean, I'm sure it's, it's sort of been an irritation that you've lived with forever. In revisiting all of those mo- oh, moments, what do you think your takeaway is? You know, <laughs> part of the takeaway is that People say things they
2: don't mean because they just feel the need to have a conversation. In the same way, you can meet people who've been dating for three months and seem really happy, and you say, when are you going to get married? You don't actually care whether or not they're going to get married. (laughs) Or the most horrifying, you say to a woman who has just had a child, are you going to have another one? (laughs) Why do we do that? It's like a conversational tick. So it's not that I think that people are so interested in my life, but One thing about this particular essay, I wish I could go back and write it again because so many people have commented on it since the book came out. And women have said to me, I have one child, and people are always telling me, I'm so selfish for just having one child, and my child won't have any social skills, and what's going to happen when you get old and you only have one child to take care of you? And then someone who has six children says, well, people come up to me all the time, and they say, I'm using up all the resources of the planet. And especially in in light of what's going on with the loss of abortion rights in the country, we think that choice is a matter about whether or not to have an abortion, But choice is also a decision to simply not get pregnant or to have one child or to have 12 children. Um, And it kind of goes out in all directions that I think we feel very comfortable commenting on other people's weight, for example, Um, other people's choices about their gender and sexuality. It just seems like what's going on inside your body is your business.
1: I can imagine that so many people have, have told you that this essay just resonates so strongly with them. And I, I know that in this conversation, um, I I will say that I'm the woman in this conversation that has chosen to have children. Um, and Anne Friedman, I know that this was an essay that really resonated with you.
4: Why? Well, listen, I am both a vegetarian and an unencumbered adult without kids. So it really hit me on a few levels. <laughs> but um, I think uh, totally it was it was striking for me because I kept thinking about how I might not be so uh, charitable if I were to write about this topic. Like it really felt like an outstretched hand rather than, you know, maybe a manifesto or something a little more defensive. And I I found myself wondering um and how you would have written this essay differently if you'd approached it say 10 or 20 years ago like have you has your tone on this evolved that's a
2: really good point so i'm 59 and there is a day <laughs> that comes when women can no longer bear children and people just stop talking to you about it so yeah I, it would have been different if I had written this at 30, 35, 40. Um, I was much more irritated because it was really, it, it really felt almost like a daily part of my life that someone was going to say, you better do it now. You're going to want them later. I know you don't want, this was the craziest one. You don't want children now but you might as well go ahead and have them because you're going to want them later and then it's going to be too late. And there just comes a beautiful moment where people stop saying those crazy things to you and you know, I I'm thrilled that other people have children. I applaud people for having children. I think children are terrific. I just didn't want to have them. I I I could never understand what seems so strange about that, but yeah, I'm, I've definitely calmed down over the years about pretty much everything.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I hope I have that to look forward to. Uh, <laughs> Deb Marcourt, I mean, your your recent collection of essays, you wrote about also being a woman who doesn't have children, and you had a different experience from Anne. Yes. Uh, tell me about your response to this essay. Well, can you hear me nodding my head
3: as everything is being said here about uh, being child-free? And, um, you know, I I blew my 20s on rock and roll and my 30s on academe, so my decision not to have children was a non-decision, but um, it really, the essay uh, resonated with me, and, and, you know, I was thinking my sister Judy had five children, so she had my two and her two and mm. someone else's one. <laughs> and so I felt relieved of the obligation, but... Um, you know, what I, I wanted to say about this piece was um, the way it was written in fragments and numbered seg- segments, and that leaves the opportunity for adding more segments as more stories come in, you know. And I think it's it's the greatest compliment when, you know, you write something and then people say, oh, that reminds me of a story, and then they start to feed stories back to you. That's that idea of the gift that is art. And, you know, yes. in the end, um, I... Well, you read some of the most resonant lines for me. You know, people want you to want what they want. And I was born with a compass, which I think is just a really profound statement um, in this in this book. You know, there are, I highlighted so many of them that they just felt like really emblematic lines just about, you know, what it's like to walk through the world, pay attention all the time, pay attention to everything and to really savor this one precious life that we have.
2: It's so hard, though. I was talking to somebody about this the other day and saying, I work so hard at exactly that, and maybe 10 minutes a day, maybe 10 minutes a day I get there, that I really Mm -hmm. am exactly in the moment that I'm in, This being one of them, really, talking with the three of you, as if no one else is listening to us, (laughs) Um, but being present in the moment, realizing, oh, I'm alive, and this is this.
1: We seem to have lost our connection to Anne Patchett in this present moment. Anne, can you hear me? Okay, I can. I I think she, uh, Anne, if you can hear me, move over to your telephone, and we will... uh, bring you on that way? Oh, it was on phone. Okay. Well, we will we will reconnect with her in um, well, I a could, moment. Sure, go, Dad. I could <laughs> just offer something,
3: Charity, that's a kind of a connection to what Anne was just talking about. I thought it was really brave of her to, um, you know, to really show herself and, you know, show her own foibles. There's that moment in that essay, um, you know, there are no children here, when she's in the driveway uh, visiting a friend who's had I think her fourth child, and she says to the mother-in-law of, of the, um, you know, of the couple, um, "Do you think they'll have more?" <laughs> you know, and uh, the mother-in-law says, "Oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, think of asking them something so personal." And so I think it's really powerful when a writer not only Uh, you're
1: back yes we we, deb was just talking about how you wrote about the moment where you yourself said something that that you had kicked yourself for in asking whether your neighbor would have uh, another child and which (laughs) which is a really beautiful and vulnerable moment and i was very grateful for it because i i was thinking about although i've tried to be very empathetic and understanding about other people's wants and desires my whole life, I was thinking, how many times have I said something stupid (laughs) and thoughtless? That was so appalling. It was so terrible of me.
2: Because really what I was saying is, so are they going to have sex and, you know, make another kid? and, and And the sort of very steely, firm way in which this woman said, I would never ask anything like that. It was great. It was a great lesson
1: mm-hmm. i I want to return to um a topic that we were talking about just briefly earlier when you um were talking about your friend's daughter seeing your typewriter and you deciding whether or not you could part with your typewriter and that that essay. You talk about a lot of the things that you have collected over time that you are able to part with, but also the things that have a hold on your heart that are difficult to part with. You're giving emotions to inanimate objects. You're wondering how they are going to feel about you giving them up. And it it was, you know, so many of us did spend time in the pandemic you know we're stuck at home, so we're going to clean out the closets, and it was such an emotional journey. And I think again, one of those moments that resonates with so many of us. And Deb, I know you had thoughts about it because it reminded you of this topic of death cleaning that um, we we have been hearing more about because of, of a Swedish book, right? This the gentle art
3: of Swedish death cleaning by Margarita Magnuson, and I, th- this book has been suggested to me by several people recently, and and so I it really echoed in in these pieces about sort of doing an inventory of one's house and trying to figure out you know why did I need you know twelve champagne you know flutes mm. and. And um, did I really think I'd have 12 people in here, you know, in the house, you know, toasting? <laughs> and it has to do with aspirations, I think. And this is one of the things I loved about so many of the pieces, the, the way that aspirations would click in um, the, um, the moment in Paris, seeing these beautiful angular you know, Parisian women with a tattoo and considering getting a tattoo of a cow for some inexplicable reason <laughs> and then finding out it was just a rub-on tattoo in the end. You know, whoa, that was a close call, you know, um, <laughs> not getting the tattoo. <laughs> but there are so many of those sort of impressionable. We're so impressionable. And this, of course, is this is what millions of dollars are spent every year on marketing to tap into that. And that's why I love that um, um how to practice essay about you know coming at it from the other side and divesting oneself. Yeah. We
1: we um, gonna ha- we have to take another short break. We'll be back in just a moment. There's so much more to talk about. I'm talking with Anne Patchett. She is the author of many books, including These Precious Days. It is a collection of essays that explores love, friendship, mortality, and so much more. Also with me today for our book club conversation, Anne Friedman, author and journalist who grew up in Iowa, and Deborah. Mark Court, who is Iowa's poet laureate, author, and distinguished professor of English at Iowa State University. We will continue our conversation in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News.
0: Support for IPR comes from the healing room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about the Healing Room at upstreamfm.com.
1: It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebby. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club and we have been reading These Precious Days by Anne Patchett. It is an essay collection that explores many important topics and was written largely during the first months and I guess, year of the COVID-19 pandemic. It explores love, friendship, and mortality. It is now out in paperback. and Patchett is here with me today, along with our expert readers, Deborah Marcourt, Iowa's Poet Laureate, author and distinguished professor of English at Iowa State University, and Ann Friedman, who is also an author and journalist who grew up in Iowa. And um, I, we are going to dive into friendship here in just a moment. But Ann Patchett, we were just talking about the essay where you're writing about going through your belongings and, and doing away with many of the belongings that you thought would be meaningful to you but are not and hadn't been touched in many years. And I, I you also have this beautiful essay about Um, It starts with a nightstand and some papers discovered in a nightstand that had been sold by your family. But it's about your papers and the things that other people who love you have collected and saved of yours. These are the things that, that you never thought to save, that you didn't feel like it was important to save. And yet they are in so many ways the most vital parts of you. These are the things that the Library of Congress wants to put in their collection. It's just fascinating to think about what we leave behind and 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 how it's so difficult to understand what is important to keep.
2: It's impossible to understand. And I still come back to the idea that I don't want to keep any of it because I feel, especially where my work is concerned, when I finish that's the thing I want people to read. I don't want people to read my scrawled, insane notes from when I was a teenager. <laughs> um, I just heard from some cousins of mine recently, and they said, oh, we have two boxes of your poetry from high school. I don't even know what to say. You know, <laughs> Do I want to say, take it out back and burn it? I'll come and get it. I don't know. It's really it's painful. It's just who wants to look at that stuff? I, Anne, Deb, do you want to look at right,
1: that? Stuff? I think probably a lot of people actually do want to look at yes. that stuff. Yes. I mean, the future bi- future bibliographers will
3: definitely want that want that stuff. But that doesn't mean I want them to have it, right?
2: <laughs> Someone else wanting it, me wanting them to have it, feels very different.
1: And yet, it's it's it feels from my perspective, far more valuable than silver serving platters.
2: Well, there is there is that, yes. I'm also interested to know if any of you have those feelings about inanimate object. If you, if you ever worry you're going to hurt a plate's feelings by throwing it away, or is that just me being crazy?
4: I don't have that feeling specifically, but I do place an outsized meaning on certain objects where... I don't think I'll hurt the plate's feelings, but I think somehow if I get rid of the plate given to me by someone I love, it's a slight against that person. You know, it's I use them as conduits to people, I think. Okay.
1: Well, and Toy Story 3 was all about inanimate objects having feelings. I think you're not alone. You could ask Tom Hanks about it. Toy (laughs) Story 3!
2: my sister and I went and we had to sit in the dark theater for 20 minutes after the final credits finished because we could not pull it together. Yep.
1: <laughs> <laughs> You're not alone. You are definitely not alone at all. I, before we run out of time, I want to delve into friendship and freedom Friedman. that. This is the reason that we really wanted you to be part of this conversation, in addition to other re- reasons. But I. Um, and Patchett, this friendship, this deep friendship with Suki, and you write about other deep friendships that you have in your life. You have sort of love letters to your friend Tavia, and you've written a great deal about your friend Lucy and, and such a powerful friendship there. You write about your friend Marty. Um This friendship with Suki comes, you know, at a time in your life where you may not have been expecting to create another deep friendship. One of the things that I love about it is that it starts kind of in the way that so many friendships start in a a very superficial way. You loved Suki's coat. (laughs) <laughs> and, and, right. which, which I absolutely loved. You're like, oh, she's neat. I want to know more about her. And then right. you did discover that you had this incredible connection with her. Yes, it, in,
2: and it's so true. And that was one of the beautiful things about youth because it, in youth, you just have nothing but time to waste on friendship, you know, doing face mm-hmm. masks and deep conditioning packs on your hair or whatever, just sitting around with your girlfriends and talking and talking about nothing. And that when we get older, it's really hard to find that time. And that's why the whole thing with Sookie was so thrilling for me and for her, because we never would have had time without the pandemic to be stuck in a house together and to talk and cook and read books and, and figure each other out. It was a tremendous gift.
1: Anne Friedman, you uh, have written so much about friendship and about the value of investing in friendship, and how so many of us think that we're far too busy to invest in friendship, and and we're missing out. I mean, this this must have felt like someone was preaching the gospel in reading this story mm-hmm. to you.
4: Oh, there are so many beautiful portraits of your friends in this collection, and I really do think of them as portraits. You know, lovingly drawn from your perspective. Um, but you use this phrase, I think it's in the essay about your friend, Tavia, um, you, you refer to the elasticity of friendship. And I just thought that was such a beautiful and concise way to um, summarize what you just said about, you know, there are times when we have times of life, when we have a lot of space and times when we do not. Um, and I'd love to I'd love to hear a little bit more about elasticity as you think about it in your friendships. Well, it's true
2: because we're not the same all the time. I mean, and Tavia is a perfect example. I mean, even now, sometimes we talk all the time. Sometimes months will go by and we don't hear from each other, but we don't doubt each other at all. And there's a great story about that. I I had been asked to write a piece for Real Simple Magazine, and I said, oh, I want to write a celebrity profile of a friend. And they said, okay, that's great. And I wrote that piece about Tavia. And they came back and they said, you know what? There needs to be conflict. There needs to be the part where you break up over a guy or you're jealous of each other. She said, you're so happy with each other. You're going to make our readers feel inadequate. And I said, listen, Tavia and I never broke up over a guy. We were never jealous of each other. And you would run this piece exactly as it is if she had breast cancer, mm. if she was dying, if if she was punished, you would run it. But right now, what you're saying is there's no punishment. We're just happy. Mm. And and I said I I can't give you punishment. I'm just going to pull the piece. And they said, oh oh no no never mind never mind we'll run it we'll run it it's fine thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, but but. Throughout writing, starting with the book Truth and Beauty that I wrote about my friend Lucy Greeley after she died, and I had so many people say to me, how do you think Lucy would have felt if you had written that book when she was alive? And that's why I wanted to write about Tavia. That's why I wanted to write about Suki. That that piece about Suki got published while she was alive. And people from all over the world, people who had had cancer, had cancer, loved her painting, followed her art, who just wanted to send their good wishes. The week before she died, And I was in L.A. sitting on her couch, and I got an email from a woman who said, I read These Precious Days, and the guy on the tall ship Christmas with the parrot on his shoulder, that was my ex-husband.
1: Oh, wow. Before I ever met him. <laughs> Do
2: you think she'd want to hear from him? I turn around, Suki, you want to hear with, from that guy on on the ship? And she says, oh, yeah, I'd love to. He writes to her or he calls her. So it was just like a minute. And he said, hey, you know, I'm thinking about you. I love you. You were a beautiful soul.
1: Wow. Wow. So good, right? Yeah. So good. <laughs> Goosebumps all over here.
2: And- to not To not wait until someone's gone, but to just jump in right away and say, I love you right now
1: that's mm. so beautiful I think it's we were supposed to all learn this from the pandemic um, and and I felt like we learned it for about a minute and then most of us have forgotten uh, maybe that's negative thinking um, but I, I I was thinking about your connection with Suki and how you know I remember people saying when they're like oh should I get married should I not get married but if I get married I'll never fall in love again and the thing is that we do fall in love all the time. We just tend to emphasize these romantic relationships in our lives over our friendship relationships, which is so much like falling in love and, and just feeling that deep connection with a person. It almost feels like we, I don't know, it feels like we block ourselves from having those deep connections because we think that they're not as valuable as the other connections in our lives. Deb, do you want to weigh in on mm-hmm. that? Oh, I was, I was just
3: thinking about this, this morning in te- in, tes- in anticipation of this discussion because, you know, there are people we're born to, but then there are the people that we find along the way in our lives who become like family. And we, we forge these deep connections. And um, I was thinking of the moment in, um, in the title essay, um, about one of the most surprising sections of that long piece is so beautiful was that peyote um, section. <laughs> and the mushrooms, the, yeah, the mushrooms right? yeah, the mushroom. The generosity of that act, and, um, you know, at the end of that, I won't ruin it for the readers who haven't gotten there yet, but the generosity of that act to sort of take that journey with Suki, and then at the end, you know, she comes up and says, I understand so much more now, And then our narrator says, you know, it was like death to me. I had a hard time. And then I think you write something like, it was like a, um, it was not a two hour journey. It was eight hours of hard labor. And so, you know, it's almost like a birthing in a way. So there are so many different ways to mother. There are Mm -hmm. so many different ways to create and procreate. And I think that that's part of what you're really writing about in these, especially these women, relationships between women, we do so much of this uh, work for each other. That's really true. The the
2: person I got the drugs from, a (laughs) great (laughs) sentence, said to me, even if you have a terrible time, you won't regret it. And I've thought so much about that because I had a terrible time, terrible time, But Sookie had a beautiful time, and it was everything Johns Hopkins told us it would be. It was a a life-changing event that helped her be free from the pain and suffering and anxiety of death. And Mm -hmm. would I do it again so that she could have that experience because she wasn't going to do it unless
3: I did it? Yeah, I would. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so beautiful. And, you know, it's like, I was thinking that childbirth is like going to that place where life and death meet and going into that danger zone. Yeah. And this, this passage of, that, of the book is like that too, that you went into that danger zone, accompanying someone there to sort of safeguard them. And this is what, you know, what giving birth is life like, but it's also what, what writing is like, what friendship is like, or can be like.
2: Well, see, you're once again making me glad I didn't have children.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the uh, we only we only have a couple of minutes left, uh, which is breaking my heart because I would love to do this all day. But you also make some really beautiful points about loss and grief. You talk about. Death, because it is something that we're all going to experience. It is exactly as common as birth on this planet and exactly as natural as birth on this planet. And uh, Ann Patchett, in the the couple of minutes that we have left, one of the most profound and moving parts of the book, and and it's toward the end of the book, is when you're writing about the loss of your father and the phrase, or not, because um, when you were waiting to grieve, for when your father died and a friend said to you, or not, and that seems like a very strange thing to say, but your father suffered so much and he lingered for so long. And then when he finally died, there was a feeling of relief in addition to all of the the love that you felt for him. And, And that's such a powerful thing to share. I can imagine that that's a part of the book that has resonated with a lot of people as well. Is that something that people talk to you about?
2: Boy, this is the perfect question to go out on, because two weeks ago, my friend Marty, who is all over this book, her mother died at 94, very healthy, incredibly sharp. She had six weeks of wild decline, and she died. And Marty and I talking, talking all through this, and I was going to go to pittsburgh to go to the funeral but because of a snowstorm i couldn't go and she called me just before the funeral started and she said i'm happy and she said i couldn't tell this to anybody but you i am standing here and she said i'm just vibrating with joy and i said your mom did such a good job she lived to 94. She had a great death. She didn't, it didn't go on forever. She could not have gone on forever. Of course you're happy for her. And I felt so much love for Marty and for her mom. And, and I was also so happy that because of our friendship, but also because of that essay, Marty knew that she had this weird, inappropriate feeling and that she could call me and say, you're the only person I could say this to. I'm really happy.
1: That Isn't is, that beautiful? That is so beautiful. And you are so unflinchingly honest in your essays. I, I can imagine that you have given a lot of readers permission to be more honest with themselves. And I thank you for that. that that's a really beautiful gift.
2: And speaking of really beautiful gifts, getting to spend the hour with the three of you has been so much fun. And these things aren't always fun. <laughs> it's also been fun listening to the Iowa weather reports on the breaks, because I haven't lived in Iowa since I was 23, maybe.
1: Wow, guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you enjoy your Nashville weather, and we are out of time. But Ann Patchett, thank you so much. Thank you. And Deborah Marcourt. thank you. Thank you for this conversation. And Anne Friedman, thank you so much. What a pleasure. We have been talking about These Precious Days by Anne Patchett. And I do want to say thank you to Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City for providing books for our readers. This show was produced by Caitlin Troutman. We had technical support today from Danny Gear and Steve Cooper. I'm Charity Nebbe. This is Talk of Iowa.